He who is to give the woman away steps forward and taking her by the right hand gives her to the man as his lawful wife. If she is a girl, her hand is covered. If she is a widow, her hand is uncovered. Then the bridegroom says, With this ring I thee wed, This gold and silver I thee give, With my body I thee worship, And with this dowry I thee endow. And the bride, having received the ring, The gold and silver and the dowry, Falls to the feet of her husband. That was a bride kneeling in silence to her husband as her new lord and master on her wedding day, as instructed in the Sarum Manual, the first English marriage service of the 11th century. They're probably in church, but a wedding could take place anywhere and they might not even be before a priest. I'm Philippa Gregory, and in my new book, Normal Women, 900 Years of Making History, I look at the everyday lives of women from early medieval times till now. With me are Rachel Lennon, author of Wedded Wife, A Feminist History of Marriage, and feminist activist Laura Bates, author of Everyday Sexism and Fix the System, Not the Women, and her new fiction, Sisters of Sword and Shadow. And we're going to talk about normal women are married, divorced and single. Rachel, how is your history of marriage a feminist history? I was really keen um, in Wedded Wife to centre the experiences of women and people who defy gender norms and particularly in a way that acknowledged that marriage is an institution that has disproportionately shaped, restricted, defined the lives of women and for a long time in the UK been disproportionately shaped and built and um, and defined by men. We have inherited such a narrow definition of what marriage is, what it means to be a married woman. And I was really keen to look back at the history and really consciously challenge some of the assumptions that have come down to us. Laura, do you think it's possible to have a feminist marriage? I think so. I think it probably depends on the couple, but I couldn't agree more that there is so much about the institution itself that actually both by design and also sort of culturally has been about restricting women, about making demands of women, about controlling women, about domesticity, about exploiting the unpaid labour of women. And I think that is something that we absolutely have to really consciously question. When Adam was first created and Lord of the universe crowned. Let's look at the origins of marriage, how the normal women of England were given in marriage and how they got away again. And yet the old wise creator still saw that he wanted a wife. In the medieval period, marriage wasn't anything to do with love. It was a way of creating unbreakable contracts between landowning families, consolidating property and resolving conflict. The Anglo-Saxon word for wives was peace weavers. The wishes of the bride were the last thing on anyone's mind and only poor women without land or house or money might get a chance to marry the man of their choice. 
any heiress was handed to her new husband by her father or guardian, whether she liked it or not. But even in the medieval years, love and marriage might go together. Marjorie Paston, 1449-79, the daughter of a wealthy Norfolk family, was expelled from her family and disinherited for falling in love and marrying the family land manager in secret. Her brother undertook an arranged marriage, but his wife, Marjorie Bruce, wrote the world's first Valentine poem to him. And if he command me to keep me true wherever he go, he wiss he will do all me micht, yo to love and never no mo. And if me friends sigh that I do amiss, they shall not let me so for to do. Me inherit me bids evermore to love yo, truly over all earthly thing. In the Roman Catholic Church service of the early 1500s, the bride's vows acknowledge sexual desire. She promises her bridegroom to be bonny and buxom, good-natured and loving, at bed and at board. Wilt thou have this man to thy husband, and to be buxom to him, love him, obey to him, and worship him, serve him, and keep him in sickness and in health, and in all other degrees be unto him as a wife should be to her husband, and all other to forsake for him, and hold thee only to him, to thy life's end. Later, Martin Luther and the Puritan movement took the love and sex out of the wedding vows, reduced the couple to monosyllables, and had the minister tell the wife, God spake thus to the woman, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow in conception, and in sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. But by the time of the Book of the Common Prayer in 1549, for the Church of England, the obey him and serve him, love, honour and keep him in sickness and in health, was back in the vows, but never again would a bride promise to be bonny and buxom. Is love overrated as a motive for marriage? Should we respect the idea of marriage as a business contract? Can we expect falling in love to last? Laura? Well, I think it's important, certainly, that we detach connotations of ownership and and those sort of elements of a business contract from the idea of a relationship. I think for so long, historically, there have been those connotations to marriage, that it has been very much about obedience, about service, um, about women essentially entering into unpaid servitude. And of course, being given away ownership of moving from the ownership of one man, their father, to the ownership of a husband. And I obviously do not think that any of those elements should be connected with a relationship. But I do think, unfortunately, that they are and have been in our collective cultural consciousness for so long. There is that sense of a contract of signing up to certain things. And unfortunately, the gender inequality in our society means that our collective assumptions are that marriage means women signing up to a kind of um, almost business contract of keeping house, raising children, taking the career hit that, that that inevitably tends to have for women and not for men. And unfortunately, those remain stubbornly difficult cultural norms to shift. Even now, we know that women still undertake so much more unpaid domestic labour than men do. Um, it was only in 1991 that 
marital rape was criminalised in the UK. So this idea, I think, that when you sign up to a marriage contract, you're kind of signing away your rights as a woman is still disturbingly recent. Rachel? I think people have struggled with that question of, you know, is this about love or is it about something else for centuries? And and I think of... um. Jane Austen is really as kind of epitome of that moment of transition where you can kind of really see in her novels these ideas of a celebration of marrying for love and marriage should be about the two individuals coming together in non-sexual passion for each other and to make that lifelong commitment. But actually that works if you just happen to fall in love with a man of the right class who's also wealthy, who also has the right religious views, the right intellect, the right, you know, your family approving. If you happen to do that, that's great. I want to look at the 19th century when a marriage was started with a set-piece fairy tale wedding based on Queen Victoria's wedding day. On the 10th of February 1840, the 20-year-old Queen Victoria married Prince Albert of Saxe-Coburg and Gotha. Readers of the Times newspaper were treated to a full description of the wedding ceremony, which would influence weddings for decades to come. Her Majesty came next, looking anxious and excited. She was paler even than usual. Her dress was a rich white satin, trimmed with orange flower blossoms. On her head, she wore a wreath of the same blossoms, but not so as to cover her face. A beautiful veil of Hoynton lace was thrown. Her bridesmaids were similarly attired, save that they had no veils. Arrayed with similar simplicity, and ladies more beautiful never graced palace, hall, or country green. Every face was turned upon them and their royal mistress. Theirs was fixed upon hers, and as they moved and turned in conformity with her step, it was evident that female vanity was for a time deadened in their bosoms, and that they were thinking not of the impression which they themselves created, but of that which was created by the royal bride. I mean, I absolutely love the judgmental male observing <laughs> that the bridesmaids are behaving nicely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it did make me smile. Everything about that gives you this sense of this consciously constructed ideal. And the thing that jumped out to me really as well there was the idea of paler than normal. And you, you get this sense of these kind of very imperialistic values that have been put on show on this amazing wedding day. And the sense that Victoria's marriage was both glorified as an individual romance between these two beautiful young people, but also a, a huge PR event for the monarchy that had had a bad few decades, you know. Instead, you know, we had this long sequence of problematic or unpopular kings, and then all of a sudden he's this beautiful bride, the hope of the monarchy, you know, showing these Christian imperial values, embodying them in kind of her pale beauty with these submissive women behind her, sort of reinforcing the sort of, um, yeah, imperialistic class and gender hierarchy. I think it sort of all comes through in that clip. That was, yeah, you could see it. Laura, are you conscious in the present day of the image of this Victorian wedding still really with us? Yes, actually, the thing that really struck me thinking, listening to that clip was just how similar even now the ways are in which we scrutinise royal weddings and the focus on 
what women look like, what women are wearing on the bridesmaids. I mean, if you think about the hysteria about Pippa Middleton's bottom at the royal <laughs> wedding, you know, this obsession yeah. with scrutinising women's bodies and appearance. It is so much about that, all of these kind of incredibly patriarchal ideas about whether you can wear white and the associations and connotations there about virginity and about the idea of women's value supposedly being very much caught up in purity. And there is so much here that is so outdated and yet still so current. It is so outdated, but as you say, so current. And I think it's really interesting that Victoria's wedding gown is still the expected template for brides today. So much, not just in the colour of whiteness, but in the length, in the idea of a pinched in waist. But actually, for most of history, for most of the last few centuries in the UK, most women were, of course, not wearing white on their wedding days. They couldn't afford a long white gown. It was impractical. They were wearing the best that they had. Or if they could afford to buy something new, it was something they could then rewear. So it was patterned or darker fabrics. And even all the way through the 20th century, you know, neither of my grandmas got married in a long white dress. They, they couldn't afford an impractical white gown. You know, one got married in a practical little skirt suit, the other in a sort of short dress that was then cut up for my mum's first Holy Communion dress. Let's hear from the modern wedding industry. This is from a blog. Little surprises throughout the day can make a wedding really magical for the guests. It can be difficult to think of ways to keep guests entertained that haven't been done at weddings before, though. Our top tip for wowing your guests is to keep all your ideas a secret in the run-up to the big day and only tell a few trusted people who you might need to help you. Keeping your cards close to your chest means that every small detail, from personalised place settings and an evening outfit change, to fireworks and a flash mob first dance, will be a complete surprise for your guests. On your way up the aisle, why not ask the guests at the ends of each row to each hand you a flower and create your bouquet as you go? This works particularly well if the bride is not being given away by anyone. Your bridesmaids don't have to carry flowers. They could carry feathers, fans or parasols. Or, if you have an evening wedding, how about some beautiful lanterns? Not all grooms are keen on flowers, but it doesn't mean they don't want to have a bit of decoration. Go quirky, from mini guitars to Yoda, or stick to your theme. If you're having a beach or seaside-themed wedding, you could pin on a starfish or a shell. Laura, you cracked up at starfish or a shell as a buttonhole for the groom. <laughs> How did you find encountering the wedding industry? It's, I mean, it's just a juggernaut, isn't it? It's so much about the idea of consumption of a very specific, very narrow image about what weddings should be and what brides should be. And so much about performance. The thing that really struck me listening to that was how much of it was about spectacle. And I think one of the things that I found difficult to navigate was just how many very rigid assumptions there are within the industry about the kind of format of a wedding and things that are, again, incredibly patriarchal. So, for example, the idea of throwing the bouquet and all the women supposedly squealing to try and catch it because the lucky person that catches it will get married next, which has so many implications of women having no control over their own lives and destiny and the kind of assumption that there's a sort of boilerplate template for what a wedding should look like. And I think that it's a formula that is profitable for the wedding industry, but it's also a formula that's profitable for society and has been for such a long time for wedding to be very much about women entering into various different contracts of being quiet and pretty and put on display. Yeah, it was interesting for me um, navigating 
all of the stereotypes of the wedding industry marrying a woman none of the templates that you inherit fit so right from the start that idea of um you reference proposal there you know we would never have got engaged if we'd both just as women passively waited to be proposed to like it wouldn't have happened you know you like it doesn't fit it doesn't work and all the way through the wedding um templates i was very conscious of gender so not just of not having a groom of duplicating brides but also you know fathers of the bride, fathers of the groom, you know, your wedding party, your best man, your maid of honour. Like, it just gendered expectations runs through so much of wedding planning, even I would say today. And I think it's something that is starting to change. So we're celebrating 10 years of same-sex marriage this year, but it, you still feel it. All the rituals of wedding show a discrepancy between the power of the groom and the power of the bride. And Orlando Patterson, historian of slavery of ancient Rome and Greece, makes a comparison between the rituals of weddings and the rituals of classical ancient slavery, where a free man might enter into a contract with a master to be enslaved. The ritual of enslavement incorporated one or more of four basic features. First, the symbolic rejection by the slave of his past and his former kinsmen. Or, as we say in the wedding service, who giveth this woman to be married unto this man? Second, a change of name. Even in our century, in 2016, 85% of women between 18 and 35 changed their name on marriage. The imposition of some visible marks of servitude. With this ring, I thee wed. And last, the assumption of a new status in the household or economic organisation of the masters. It's a bit disturbing, isn't it, that the ceremony we see as a hallmark of Western women's freedom, her marriage of choice, carried with it till the 1990s, the feudal ownership of a woman's body. Laura? I mean, certainly I, I think it is really jarring and important for us to recognize those enormous implications within marriage of ownership of expectation of of labor of unpaid labor there is so much i think still about marriage where that is replicated everything from the you know unfair division of chores to assumptions about women ironing men's clothes and uh, keeping their house and giving up their career to bear their children and all the rest of it very, very much so. Yeah, I think the um, the history of marriage in the UK really for a long, long time is a history of women losing rights as they enter into a contract and men gaining them. And, and really it is that stark. So, you know, as you say, rights to body, rights to property, rights to anything that body produces. So any labour and earnings that that might generate belong to the man. Any children that that body produces might belong to a man. Um, and as you're talking about kind of sexual consent, um, Men were given protection from then abusing that woman um, physically, um, as well as obviously sexually. Really, really extreme and stark situation. And so for a long time, women not only lost those rights, but also really lost their standing as a legal individual in society. So under the, what was called the doctrine of coverture. So essentially the man and woman become one in the wedding. We still hear that sort of romanticised language, but 
a man and a woman would become one in a wedding and that one would be the husband. <laughs> you know, the woman wouldn't be part of that. It wasn't a team. She was lost. She was sort of, you know, covered by his identity. So really, really drastic situation for women. And I, I do associate it with ideas of name changing and identity today. I just wanted to say that it's so true that even if you make an individual decision not to sign up to those conventions, it won't prevent other people from projecting them onto you. I didn't take my husband's name, but I do get letters addressed to Mrs. His Full Name. And I'm not even Mrs. <laughs> so it's, yeah. it's, I think society makes assumptions that perhaps are outside of our control, even if we think we might be in control of the individual choices we make around marriage. And that's particularly true, I think, as well for women who don't get married, because there are assumptions made about them by implication, by extension. You know, this idea that our society obsessively has about spinsters that I think we can see in the propaganda and the tabloid sort of frenzy around Jennifer Aniston, you know, poor, poor old Jen, poor old perpetually single Jen, while someone like George Clooney was uh, described as, you know, a silver fox and the ultimate bachelor. And in his case, when he got married, it was his wife who was kind of portrayed as having one big as if she'd sort of netted this great catch, never mind that she was herself an incredible human rights lawyer, which seems really unfair. Yeah, I I felt as I was um, writing my wife, it is an impossible history to escape, an impossible legacy to escape today. And I think as you're saying, they're around titles. So I also go by Ms. And I'm asked if I'm a Miss or a Mrs. so often. When I say Ms, it's always a sort of, oh, okay, (laughs) like that's a deviation. And, you know, Are you a miss or a missus? Even today, marriage is considered a woman's destiny and single women complain of being constantly asked when they will marry. Laura, I know that happened to you. Yeah, I think we still have this idea that a a very heteronormative white-centric concept of what marriage is, is the kind of be-all and end-all. We see it in the fairy tales that kids grow up with. We see it in the Disney movies. So much of um, the assumptions that we really force on our kids from a really young age is that catching a man, finding a man, getting that man to ask you to marry him is the kind of pinnacle of female achievement that we are assumed to all be aiming for. And I think that that is so incredibly harmful. It's so incredibly narrow. It's so incredibly exclusionary of of so many people who, for so many different reasons, don't necessarily fit into that narrative. And it also, I think, has a real knock-on negative impact on sisterhood and on respect and value being placed on women's platonic relationships because within that narrative is a kind of subplot if you like whereby women are seen as competition you know this all of these kind of stereotypical ideas about cat fights and about queen bees boils down to the idea that women are constantly in competition for men's affection and that fundamentally if catching the man is the ultimate prize then it must mean that other women should be seen as as very much standing in your way as obstacles to that. So I think, it, you know, it's not necessarily about maligning marriage in its entirety, but very much about recognising that for a whole host of reasons, there are people who are thriving and flourishing outside of it. And as a society, we don't necessarily make space for those women to be celebrated similarly, for their achievements to be separated from whether or not they happen to have chosen to marry someone. And I think that's really sad. Rachel, as a couple of women, 
Did you come under pressure to marry? I don't think we did, actually, <laughs> when we were together. Not in the same way that I know that friends who've been in relationships with men have done. But obviously growing up and through kind of all my life, I, I did experience that kind of expectation, that quiet expectation around marriage and the idea that, yeah, you would grow up, meet a man and marry, and that that was the path that you were on. And and as Laura's saying, you know, it's Disney films. I mentioned Austin earlier. It's just, it's pervasive. It's everywhere. And, you know, very heteronormative. For me, in a same-sex relationship, I would like to see greater steps towards true marriage equality. So to be able, as a same-sex couple, to choose to marry in all the places that someone in a different sex relationship can choose. And that would have made quite a big difference to me in my life. And I think we we often find that people in queer relationships are excluded from religious or spiritual spaces, but may very much want to be in that space. And that's something in the UK that I think I would love to see. Of course, throughout history, for a long, long time, poor women who had no property for a husband to claim often married informally in folk traditions that could be easily reversed to dissolve the marriage. So jumping over a broom to seal the marriage and you could jump backwards to end it, hand fasting and hand breaking. Another ritual, wife sales, was a well-known way to create a semi-permanent bond for poor people. These traditions were probably in place before 1066 and continued well into the 19th century. This is a wife's cell dramatised and fictionalised in 1886 by Thomas Hardy in his novel The Mayor of Casterbridge. I asked this question and nobody answered to it. Will any Jack Rag or Tom Straw among ye buy my goods? Mike! Mike! She said. This is getting serious. Oh, too serious. Will anybody buy her? said the man. I wish somebody would, she said firmly. Her present owner is not at all to her liking. Nor you to mine, said he. We are agreed about that. Gentlemen, you hear? It's an agreement to part. She shall take the girl if she wants to and go her ways. I'll take my tools and go my ways. To simplest scripture history. It's such an interesting and, and relatively hidden history, considering how, you know, over what time period that it, it went on. And I think the this sort of wife sales really reflect how difficult it was for working people to separate. So, you know, marriage has never been forever for everyone. Um, some of the most privileged people in society be, could access divorce through an individual tailored act of parliament. But for working people, it was very, very difficult I found a few examples of wife sales in my research all the way through, as you're saying, the 19th century and even into the 20th century. I found a, a story of a woman who, um, in 1907, had sought the sale of herself, it was presented as, to a man in that she was so keen to leave her husband and to have her new relationship recognised in the community she was in. It felt like that the transfer of money was an understood to be a formal start of a new of a new marriage. So there were some situations in which it was just an accepted way of of parting. But some of the practices associated with wife sales involved halters around women's necks, involved women being taken to market like cattle, really dehumanizing, humiliating practice, really at any time for any woman who who participated in it. A really double standard that gave men more choice and more ability to part than women. 
The Roman Catholic Church offers a legal escape from marriage as an annulment, which can be granted only by the Pope and then on very limited grounds. But once divorce was invented by Henry VIII, for himself, it favoured men. Women could only get a divorce if their husbands had forced them into marriage by rape or if the husbands were already married to someone else. There were only two successful divorce petitions from wives in the House of Lords in 200 years, from 1650 till the law was changed in 1857. One extraordinary woman gamed the entire system. Mary Edwards, 1705-43, to was said to be the wealthiest woman in England when in her early 20s she married a young aristocratic ensign in the Guards, Lord Anne Hamilton, younger son of the fourth Duke of Hamilton. The announcement of the marriage appeared in the Gentleman's Magazine in July 1731. Lord Anne Hamilton to Miss Edwards, of very great fortune. It seems that they lived happily together in either of her two beautiful houses, her townhouse in St James's Street, London, and her country house in the then-country village of Kensington. They were leaders of society that were painted by Hogarth. Two years into the marriage, Mary Edwards gave birth to a son and then discovered that her husband had stolen £17,000 worth of her shares in the Bank of England and the India Company. As a husband, of course, they were all his anyway. But Mary Edwards instructed her lawyers to pursue him, describing herself as... Mary Edwards, spinster. She denied their marriage, blocking his rights as a husband to her fortune, named her own son as a bastard, and herself as a woman whose reputation was ruined. It was a move of extraordinary daring. Her husband crumbled before it, The lawyers forced Lord Anne Hamilton to return the money and he left her and his son. Social ruin did not follow. Mary Edwards' wealth and courage saved her from exclusion from polite society and she continued to live with her son in her beautiful houses, a well-known patron of the arts. In 1742, she sat for her portrait by Hogarth, draped in jewels, surrounded by symbols of independence. And it's that portrait of a woman who beat a gold digger, risked her good name for her fortune and kept her son into the bargain. That's the portrait on the jacket of my new book, Normal Women. What's exceptional about Mary Edwards is that she did not oppress herself. She didn't buy into social control of her wife. She did not feel bound to stay and try and manage a criminal husband as so many women felt they had to do. She dared to name herself as a whore and her son as a bastard to get her money back. Laura, do you think it's true that a woman can't be free unless she can step out of a marriage as well as step in? Yes, I think it's vital that women have the freedom, that anybody in any marriage has the freedom to make decisions about stepping outside of that contract of that relationship for many different reasons. But in particular, for me, I'm thinking about abuse. I'm thinking about the fact that even now, one in four women in England and Wales will experience domestic violence during their lifetime. The fact that there is a phone call to the police every minute about domestic abuse. And of course, that we know that on average, a woman is murdered every three days by a man and that most commonly it will be a current or former partner. Now, of course, domestic abuse is not confined to marriage, but I think marriage often presents unique obstacles to escaping it. 
both legal obstacles and the difficulty of that form of disentanglement, but also particularly, I think, societal obstacles, the assumptions that we make about marriage, ideas, for example, that something that happens within a marriage is private, you know, neighbours shouldn't interfere, it's behind closed doors, it's domestic, it's between them. Assumptions about husbands as kind of heads of households and the assumptions that we make about a level of control that that kind of affords them societally over their wife, over her movements, over her social life and her freedom and her finances. I think for a very long time, there have been many elements of domestic violence, particularly when it comes to coercive and financial control that are quite bound up in our societal ideas of marriage and the marriage contract. And I think that that has shielded men for a very long time, often from accountability. Marriage is not necessarily responsible for sexual and domestic abuse, but certainly has been bound up perhaps in obscuring it, excusing it, explaining it away and making it much more difficult in some situations for women to leave abusers. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think you asked right at the start, is it possible to have a feminist marriage? And I think it's not possible to have a feminist marriage without an escape route. And I think that history really is the best argument for escape routes that you could find. So in my research, I, I've come across so many difficult to read, difficult to discover stories of women trapped in marriages, women who've been trapped not only by difficulty in accessing legal separation or divorce, but by a complex web of legal and, as Laura's saying, kind of social expectations placed on them. So women who have been unable to leave their husbands without also leaving their children, women who've been unable to leave their husbands without also leaving behind any means of survival or future income. And, and it, you know, history is really full of these really tragic tales of women who's, um, who've had to suffer really unthinkable intimate partner torture because they haven't been able to see their way out. Most wives determined to end their marriages had to run away and keep running. The case of Cecilia Ann Cochran was brought by her mother before Judge Mr Justice Coleridge in 1840 when her estranged husband had kidnapped her. It's amazing to us now, but the judge supported the husband's right to imprison his own wife. A husband has custody of his wife and may confine her if he sees fit. However, when a wife absents herself from her husband on account of no misconduct on his part, and he afterwards, by stratagem, obtains possession of her person, and she declared her intention of leaving him again whenever she can, he has a right to restrain her of her liberty until she is willing to return to a performance of her conjugal duty. Her conjugal duty meant having sex with him. The judge went on. For the happiness and honour of both parties places the wife under the guardianship of her husband and entitles him, for the sake of both, to protect her from the danger of unrestrained intercourse with the world by enforcing cohabitation and common residence. Let her be restored to Mr. Cochrane. There was no way a wife could escape a husband and take her fortune and children with her until the law was changed from the 1850s 
thanks to the campaigning of Caroline Norton, described by Kate Moss in our second episode, Normal Women Are Angels. Caroline Norton wrote, The father had a right to deprive his wife of her infant children at any moment, and for any cause. Infidelity and brutality on the part of the husband and blamelessness on the part of the wife made no difference in the decisions of courts of justice. A man could take his innocent, legitimate child from his wife and give it to the woman with whom he was living. The English law, the law which boasts a remedy for every wrong, the law of the country which piques itself on the protection of the oppressed, gave that mother no redress, but left her child in the custody of its father's mistress. After the break, we're going to talk about women-only weddings in church, a lost and forgotten history. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Normal Women Are Married, Divorced and Single. With me, our social history curator and writer, Rachel Lennon, and author, feminist, activist and founder of the Everyday Sexism Project, Laura Bates. One of the most surprising things in my research into weddings and marriage was to discover church weddings between women performed by a vicar even entered openly into the parish register. Ironically, the church has tied itself in knots recently trying to argue against same-sex church weddings and ignoring their history. But in the 18th century, there were so many women weddings that the phrase female husband was used without further explanation. Here's some extracts from parish registers. Anna Wright and Anne Gaskell, parish of Presbury, 4th of September, 1707. Anne Norton and Alice Pickford, parish of Presbury, 3rd of June, 1708. A few decades later, in 1734 in London, Soho, the clergyman would not issue a marriage certificate to the tailor, John Mountford, and Mary Cooper, a spinster, making a note that he suspected two women, no certificate, which suggests that he did not marry them because they had no licence for their wedding, not because they were women. A clergyman in 1737 officiated at the wedding of John Smith and Elizabeth Hutthall and later recorded his doubts. By ye opinion after matrimony, my clerk judged they were both women. 
If ye person by name John Smith be a man, he's a little short, fair, thin man, not above five foot. In 1747, a newly married couple, John Ferron and Deborah Nolan, were discovered to both be women after the wedding. But the marriage was not challenged, and no action was taken. The supposed John Ferron was discovered after the ceremony were over to be in person a woman. The Marriage Act of 1753, which required the calling of bands in local parishes or the issuing of special marriage licences and the recording of all weddings, was aimed at preventing the entrapping of heiresses by fortune-hunting grooms, not against same-sex weddings for women, which continued throughout the 18th century. Marriages between women fell out of fashion in the church in the 19th century. Gentleman Jack, Anne Lister, who we met in the episode Normal Women Love Women, declared that she was married to her friend and lover, Anne Walker, by the act of taking private vows and communion together in a private ceremony the two of them created at Holy Trinity Church in York, 1834. But they made no attempt to persuade the vicar to perform a marriage ceremony. Rachel, does it seem incredible now that the church is arguing about women marrying in church when the church has, for centuries, married women in church? Yes, I think it's very consistent with this idea that the sort of assumptions of marriage that we've inherited are so constructed. This Everything that you've said is such a hidden history, and I think there'll be people listening who are thinking, what, I didn't know that. It is a very hidden history, and same-sex couples have existed you know, not as long as there have been people, and same-sex Weddings have been practised on every populated continent before being sort of stamped out and restricted. So, yeah, it's lovely to think that kind of now is where, you know, 10 years into same-sex marriage, that there is a history to pull on. Sometimes I think same-sex weddings are seen as a 21st century phenomenon, and as we've just seen, they're absolutely not. As part of the questioning of women's role in Victorian society, the radical writer Mona Caird published an explosively provocative piece on marriage in the Westminster Review of 1888. The present form of marriage is a vexatious failure. If certain people have made it a success by ignoring those orthodox ideas, such instances afford no argument in favour of the institution as it stands. We are also led to conclude that modern respectability draws its lifeblood from the degradation of womanhood in marriage and in prostitution. Replies flooded in. Wives spoke out against violent husbands and against the system that held them in marriages against their will. But some disagreed. I myself am a deserted wife, and my husband has treated me with exceptional contempt and unkindness. But I am proud to say that so great is my reverence for the sanctity of the marriage vow that if my husband sent for me to return to him tomorrow, I would go, and with a hearty will and friendly affection, strive to do my duty to him. The change to the laws of marriage made a huge difference for women. Another kidnapped wife, Emily Hall, seized by her husband Edmund in 1891, was summoned to court by her sisters, trying to rescue her with a writ of habeas corpus. The question was repeated. Could a man lawfully detain his own wife in their home? The case went before three senior judges and the court ushers were ordered to bring in chairs for the three wives 
of the senior judges who took their seats to watch their husbands hand down the judgment on whether Emily Hall, a wife who had run away from a violent and abusive husband, could be captured and kept by him. The judges, under the steely gaze of their wives, decided he could not, and Emily Hall was released to her family. It's a wonderful moment of courtroom drama and a sign of the changing times. In 1923, the law changed to end the double sexual standard of the law in divorce so that a husband's adultery was grounds for divorce, just as a wife's adultery had always been. A wife no longer had to show an offence in addition to his adultery, like cruelty or abuse or rape. Ironically, by making it possible for wives to divorce husbands who were guilty only of adultery, the many abused and raped wives no longer had to report or prove the violence against them. Marital violence slipped from the records. The proportions of petitions filled by wives rose from 41% in 1921 to 62% when wives were allowed to divorce on grounds of adultery alone. But there's no way of knowing how many of them were being physically abused as well as betrayed. Laura, this really speaks to your understanding of the amount of abuse and violence in marital relationships and how it gets, in a sense, hidden even by the liberalising of the divorce laws. Absolutely. I mean, the situation at present is that uh, we know that at the very lowest end of the uh, figures, 85,000 women a year are raped in England and Wales alone. And yet societally, we continue to have this sort of mysterious figure in our collective consciousness of the rapist as the stranger in the dark alleyway, that rape is an act of of sexual attraction, when of course what we really know and what all of the figures suggest is that it is an act of power and control that is much more likely to be committed by somebody already known to the victim. So we are talking about husbands, we are talking about rape within marriages, within existing relationships, rather than things happening in dark alleyways. And as a society, we still really struggle to grapple with that and to recognise it, I think. And again, I think that's where this idea of the kind of sanctity of marriage, of marriage as something unassailable, all works against women because it really predisposes us as a society to make excuses, to brush it under the carpet, to assume that it's no one's business except the couples, you know, that it's a domestic issue. And I think as a society, we have very long struggled to recognise acts within marriage as criminal acts, abuse within marriage as abuse, and not just, you know, part of a relationship or things that happen. And that remains a problem, I think. Mm. And I think some of it is to do with the fact that the kinds of stories that we're talking about are not many generations ago. So you're saying, you know, women have only had equal access to divorce in this country for a century. That's not so many generations. It takes a lot longer for the kind of cultural assumptions to sort of to fade away. Even in 1923, the Matrimonial Causes Bill, which was going to liberalise divorce for women, though not by very much, was read for the third time in the House of Commons and Mr Francis Blundell, Conservative MP for Ormskirk, said... I believe the bill to be bad and immoral and likely to have a deleterious effect on the morals of the country. Yeah. A marriage vow is sacred. Yeah. 
This is an attempt to set up an artificial equality which in fact cannot exist between the two sexes. But overriding all other objections, the bill is contrary to the law of God. And Mr. Herbert Dunico, concert labour, also opposed. This is the first step in a powerful campaign to make the dissolution of marriage the easier. Whatever tends to that end is a fatal blow at the very foundations of our national greatness and the fabric of our home. I believe that the bill is unnecessary, that it will do more harm than good, and that it is a retrograde step which will reduce the holy sacrament of marriage to the common level of a commercial transaction. Every time the divorce law is liberalised, people fear that it's the end of marriage. But every time so far, that disaster has not happened. Every time divorce is made easier, more wives than husbands apply for divorce. Divorce rates are climbing after a consistent and dramatic fall in the first 18 years of the century. 2021 data for England and Wales shows that 42% of marriages don't last 25 years. But people remarry, and though those marriages may end in divorce too, 62.1% of the population get married at one time or another in their lives. Marriage has proved to be a resilient arrangement. It's clearly sold to women, but even if the wedding day is a great experience for the bride, is marriage good for a wife? I think it can be. Um, And I think there's lots of research into the ways in which marriage can affect um, people physiologically, psychologically. Marriage is not only resilient, but it's, it's not static and it's never been static. So I think the research sort of suggests that women who are in happy marriages can you know, have lower heart rates and, you know, you know, fewer health problems than women who aren't. But as you might expect, women who are in unhappy marriages are much worse off than single women. Laura, do you think that marriage is a finite institution? Do you think that we may even see the end of it? I think it's completely possible that marriage could be an institution that declines to the point of disappearing. And I don't think that would be a bad thing actually listening to those men kind of just panicking about the potential of any sort of perceived detriment to marriage for me just speaks volumes about how clearly society for so long has made the connection between the concept of marriage as an institution and essentially the control, societal control of women. And I think that remains true today when we see tabloid headlines kind of panicking about the destruction of the nuclear family as if it's sort of a devastating idea that would lead to societal collapse when so often that idea is conflated with the idea of women's financial independence, women's economic empowerment, women making choices about their lives and about their bodies and about their children. I think there would be a massive moral panic about the end of marriage, but I think what it would be concealing in reality would be a panic about women's emancipation. And I think that we should be questioning as a society why we are so intent on preserving marriage as an institution. 
the proportion of adults who've never been married or been in a civil partnership has increased every decade from 26.3% in 1991 to 37.9% in 2021. Uh, Rachel, do you think marriage is actually becoming extinct? I don't. I don't. Um, we There is a lot of commentary around the decline of marriage, but I think the fact that most people do marry at some point in their lives does say a lot and and marriage rightly evolves and and we saw that with same-sex marriage and I think there are reforms to be made in the future and it might be that um, it is around same-sex marriage and, and greater inclusion in the church or religious bodies but I think there's something about marriage that draws us in so mar- some form of marriage has existed in almost every known recorded society and that's an incredible fact in itself and and I think we do see um, not only in that kind of societal scale but on an individual level when people are drawn back to remarry when you know we get sucked in so I, I, I don't see an imminent end to marriage. I think for me it's about relationships rather than marriage it's about societal and cultural norms rather than about kind of legislation as long as we as a society continue to perpetuate our assumptions about what marriage means in terms of the kind of subjugation of women in terms of ownership in terms of obedience to a partner in terms of the kind of privacy of domesticity and that lending itself to the normalization of violence all of those things are problems but they're not necessarily problems with legal solutions i think they're more problems with societal solutions that we should be moving away from the assumption that marriage is an automatic kind of pinnacle of achievement for women we should be moving away from the assumption that a marriage ending is somehow a failure or something to be mourned that it kind of is detrimental i think that we should recognize that people choosing to step out of a marriage can be doing something that's very it might be practical, it might be very brave, it might be absolutely the right thing for them and their family, it might be something to be celebrated. We'll just have to see how this ancient institution of marriage evolves in the future. Laura Bates, Rachel Lennon, thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I do hope you've enjoyed my podcast series and the normal women we've met on the way the rioters and angels, the pop stars and campaigners, the lovers and the fighters, doctors, nuns, milliners and data scientists. Please tell the normal women in your life about the series and the book that inspired this podcast, Normal Women, 900 Years of Making History, available at any bookshop. And there's an audio book too. The Normal Women podcast was written and presented by me, Philippa Gregory, and features the voice talents of Claire Corbett, James Good, Melanie Gutteridge and Rufus Wright. The producer is Marilyn Rust. Executive producer is Kate Ford. Sound design is by Tom Birchall and includes original music by Juliet Pochin. The folk song, When Adam Was First Created, sung by Andy Turner. Commissioning editor for William Collins is Arabella Pike. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.